I wish to begin this episode by stating that I have never studied Reichian therapy or ergonomics as a potential practitioner, nor have I ever undergone Reichian or ergonomic therapy as a patient. Therefore, what I shall present here is strictly and entirely an academic and historical overview of the man, his thought, and his aftermath, based largely but not entirely on articles in scholarly journals and also on books on Reich and related topics. I am also going to compare Reich's thought with that of philosophers and physicists. For presentations by a trained organomic therapist, I refer you to the Discover Joyous Love podcast conducted by my associate and colleague, Anita Francesco, M.A. We begin with some negative assessments of Reich and his ideas. The first is by Norman Levine of the Department of History, University of Maryland, in an article entitled Wilhelm Reich, Culture as Power, published in the journal History of European Ideas. And I quote, The career of Wilhelm Reich divides itself into three broad periods. The Freudian, spanning the years 1920 until 1927, the Marxian, stretching from 1927 until his expulsion from the German Communist Party in 1933, and finally the Gnostic, marked by his belief in sexual mystic pantheism and a growing insanity, reminding you that that's in quotes, not something I said, which deepened after his expulsion from the International Psychoanalytic Association in 1934. Reich's Gnostic period was characterized by his discovery of cosmic orgone energy in 1939. This last period of Reich's writing is not without value for the study of Reich's thought. The murder of Christ, the cancer biopathy, God, ether, and devil, and cosmic superimposition, even though the work of an erratic mind, again his statement, not mine, illustrates therefore more poignantly and tragically some basic Reichian themes. First, the ultimate harmony between nature and civilization, and second, the contemporary dualism between Rousseauist natural goodness and the emotional plague of a repressive society. However, Reich was both a critic of the dominant bourgeois ideology, particularly in its Freudian form, as well as a perpetrator of important motifs of that dominant ideology. He was at once a rebel and a conservative. I, that is Norman Levine, will criticize Reich for his theory of genital primacy. Regardless of Reich's political and cultural radicalism, I will show that Reich's psychoanalytic theory was an expression of middle-class ideology. His theory of personality, even though he attacked the capitalist world, actually reaffirmed major aspects of the bourgeois ideological hegemony. Unquote. Levine begins this article by citing Max Horkheimer's statement that, quote, in philosophy the current state of affairs finds expression in the abstractedness in the concept of the individual which is the basic concept of modern thought. The separation of individual from society and nature, closely connected with the other philosophical dualism of thought and being, substance and appearance, body and spirit, sense and understanding, turn the concept of the free individual, which is the bourgeois answer to the Middle Ages, into an almost metaphysical essence. Unquote. 
As regular listeners know well, your host opposes mind-body dualism and all of its manifestations from Plato through Descartes and beyond, but he does not believe that such separation turns the concept of the free individual into any kind of quasi-religious or noxiously spiritual, in the worst sense of that word, metaphysical essence. Nor, in my opinion, did Wilhelm Reich. However, I digress. Suffice it to say that Levine's article makes it clear that Dr. Wilhelm Reich was equally the target of the left, the right, and alas, the middle. To this we would add the following almost unbelievably derogatory statements about Reich from the Washington Post in 1983, reminding you that this was after the 1960s, after the sexual revolution, and after the so-called New Left. We quote with reluctance, but we quote anyway. Reich seems one of the few truly tragic figures of this century, meaning, of course, the one which is now behind us. A prince of the early psychoanalytic movement, acknowledged by Freud as the best head among his associates at the Vienna Psychoanalytic Polyclinic, world-renowned as theorist and clinician by the age of 35, he fell to the depths denied nearly everywhere, diagnosed as suffering from paranoia manifested by delusions of grandiosity and persecution, Reich died of a heart attack in federal penitentiary at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, 1957. He was 60 years old and had served nine months of a two-year sentence. The crime of which Wilhelm Reich was convicted was of having violated an injunction obtained by the Food and Drug Administration against interstate transportation of his orgone accumulator, a metal and wood cabinet that Reich said restored human physical powers and the FDA declared a medical fraud. But the larger reality of the proceeds against Wilhelm Reich and his Orgone Institute at Rangeley, Maine, is that he was convicted of having sinned against society. He conspired to remake it. He believed he could free us all from a worldwide emotional plague through the fullness of the sexual orgasm. Reich's discovery of orgone radiation and invention of the orgone accumulator were only the final thrusts of Reich's decades of self-destructive revolutionary effort to change the world's conception of sex. He had come to believe a cosmic energy he called orgone, from the words orgasm and organism, radiated throughout the universe and in all life, and that enhanced amounts of orgone gathered in his boxes could change, well, nearly everything. And if you sat in one of Reich's orgone accumulators, everything included not only enhanced orgastic potency, but the alleviation of anemia, speedy recovery from burns, and the slower spread of cancer. But there was still more. With tubes and pipes connected to orgone boxes, as the irreverent called his accumulators, Reich and his followers shot enhanced orgonic clouds in New England and Arizona to relieve droughts and make deserts green. Reich's orgone compulsion led him into a jungle of acronyms, abbreviations, and delusions again requoting the Washington Post, he found finding new variants and applications, or honor, core, C-O-R-E, or, and door, D-O-R, 
all postulated as a result of experiments with orgone and radioactive materials conducted by Reich, his wife Ilse Ohlendorf, his daughter Eva, son Peter, Myron Schiraff, and others. D-O-R, door, meant deadly orgone and got the name because everyone became ill while fooling with radium and accumulators at Organon. Reich's 200-acre retreat and research center near Rangeley. It was D.O.R., by the way, Dor, that Reich believed in 1952 and 1953 was the cause of the bluish light various observers of flying saucers saw shimmering through the openings of the machines. Flying saucers were spaceships, Reich said, powered by orgone energy. D.O.R. was the slag or exhaust from these machines as they consumed orgone. He also thought the spaceship's extraterrestrial pilots might be bombarding the Earth's atmosphere in an act of war, or possibly they were giving us a cosmic lesson concerning the immunization benefits of D.O.R. sickness. If such a bizarre vision of the world seems profoundly sad, it's only the massive center of Reich's delusion. The details are worse, and one wonders how an enlightened and democratic society, even in the era of Dwight Eisenhower and hula hoops, could find no resolution except to clamp handcuffs on Wilhelm Reich and send him to jail. Reich conducted therapy in a most unorthodox fashion. His patients were all but naked during treatment. He induced them to shout, cry, gag, and stream, S-T-R-E-A-M, as they escaped their armor. Many thought he was a cousin of God. He helped so much. It is interesting to compare this therapy technique of Reich's with Arthur Janov's primal therapy, as initially enunciated by him in his first book, The Primal Screen, in 1970, only 13 years after Reich was imprisoned. Was Janov sent to prison? No. John Lennon tried primal scream therapy and commented, quote, I still think the Janos therapy is great, you know, but I do not want to make it a big Maharishi thing. Steve Jobs experimented with it, but later became bored and disdainful of it. So, did primal scream therapy work? A therapy that was similar to Reich's therapy in many ways? Well... Unlike Reich's method, it was tested to be the type of psychological research we relate frequently on this podcast. Tomas Winnegard reported on a study of a sample of 32 patients who entered therapy at Yanov's The Primal Institute in 1975 and 1976. The outcome evaluation for the patients was 4, very good, 9, good, 8, medium, 6, bad, including one suicide, and 5, unavailable for post-testing, because they left the therapy prematurely. Vinegard concluded that therapy at the Primal Institute, using the Primal Scream, was marginally better than the Tavistock Clinic and markedly better than the Menager Foundation, very famous clinics at that period of time, the two psychotherapy clinics he used for comparison. And yet, Reich was persecuted, while Janov was not. And now, for history in view of Reich's life and work, which is closer to our own. And again, we quote, Reich was the premier psychoanalyst of the second generation of psychoanalysis and perhaps its most innovative, if controversial, thinker. 
a sign of his future avant-garde reputation. He came from a prosperous farming family in Galicia. His father was a stern, learned man, his exalted mother a careworn wife. He had vivid early experiences with sexuality and with anti-Semitism. After serving in World War I, he studied medicine at the University of Vienna, where he took classes in anatomy from Julius Tondler, the governing Social Democrats Commissioner of Public Welfare and a champion of modern social work. In 1920, at the age of 22, Reich joined the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society, quote, I was occupied with psychoanalysis in a most intensive way, he said, not only due to an objective interest in this completely new science, but also because of a vague sense that I thought in it I might approach certain obscure regions of my own ego, unquote. Reich became a fixture at the ambulatorium, the analyst free clinic in Vienna, and maintained an on-and-off collegiality with Greta and Everett Bittering, Otto Fenechel, Edward Hirschmann, and Paul Federn. Between 1922 and 1927, the ambulatorium occupied the basement of a unique trauma and cardiology unit at 18 Pelikangasse. The general hospital was around the corner. Medical offices substituted for austere treatment rooms, and the analytic couches were metal gurneys. Yet the whole psychoanalytic enterprise was animated by the conviction that, in a city teeming with social services, the ambulatorium was the most innovative and socially conscious. Reich was, throughout his life, a venturesome, if irreverent, man, and the ambulatorium was a perfect venue for his passionate idealism. He assembled the first clinical case seminar there, confronted his colleagues on their clinical errors, and instead of analyzing an individuals' distinct or reactive emotions, developed an influential characterological model of psychoanalysis. Reich called his clinical approach, derived from the intense sociological observations and sexology interests, shared by Otto Fenneckel and Carl Abraham, among others, character analysis. The two essential premises of character analysis, A, that everyone develops an integral personality, and B, that no one really wants to give it up, continue to inform most clinical instruction programs today. Let's take a moment to put a question on the table for further consideration, perhaps in another episode. How might these statements A and B be similar to existentialism, to the idea that existence precedes essence. Reich's first writing on the subject, the psychoanalytic essay on character analysis, and the expansive text, The Function of the Orgasm, both from 1927, are more akin to practice than theory. They address the recurring clinical problem that Freud had noted in 1926. What happened to the instinctual impulse which had been activated in the id and which sought to be gratified? To this, Reich answered that one had to look at the whole person, not just at the symptom. If you were a Viennese psychoanalyst in the early 1920s, and if you had time to attend a Thursday evening meeting at the technical seminar, you would learn the difference between symptom and character analysis. Where Freud's symptoms carried individual diagnostic urgency, even in their names, e.g., signal anxiety, war neurosis, Reich's concept, e.g., orgastic potency, 
came out of the clinic, the field, and out of the community. In focusing on total personality, on the holistic personality, Reich found it rewarding to discard distracting symptoms and instead call to mind a well-designated diagram of energy systems, their flows and their obstructions. Just a very brief side note. Does this sound a little bit like chakras? For those of you who know anything about Buddhism and Tantra, just asking. Thus, by the early 1920s, he had made symptom-specific analysis avoidable and urged candidates to observe that a patient's defenses are repressed and revealed as much by the body's unconscious as by the mind's. Freud found this perspective different from those of other analysts. Only one, Shonda Ferenczi, was experimenting with such a holistic form of treatment whereas most others believe that character analysis would impose a pre-existing behavioral template on the patient who should, instead, drive the course of the treatment. Freud was deeply fond of Ferenczi. The two men exchanged over 1,200 letters in 25 years, though personally ambivalent about his, quote, modern, unquote, technique. Freud was similarly hesitant and protective toward Reich, In 1923, he questioned Reich's sense of morality, but found him otherwise diligent, eager, and respectable. And in 1924, Ferenczi said that, quote, Dr. Reich's suggestions have many points in contact with the theory of genitality. Certainly Reich is demonstrating himself to be an originally gifted therapist. The following is a brief divagation concerning the use of touch in psychotherapy here specifically in psychoanalysis. In the book Touch in Psychotherapy, Theory, Research, and Practice, Edward W. L. Smith, Pauline Rose Clance, et al., tell us that Freud's greatest personal concern about the use of touch in psychotherapy was not theoretical. In his confrontation with Hungarian psychoanalyst Sondra Ferenczi, for the latter's use of nurture and touch in order to help patients tolerate the pain, which was avoided by means of characterological defenses, Freud expressed deep concern for the image of psychoanalysis as well as for its dogma. Freud wrote the following letter to Ferenczi in the hope that the latter would stop. Quote, A number of independent thinkers in the matter of technique will say to themselves, Why stop? Certainly one gets further when one adopts pawing as well. And then bolder ones will come along who will go further to peeping and showing. And soon we shall have accepted in the techniques of analysis the whole repertoire of petting parties, resulting in an enormous increase of interest in psychoanalysis among both analysts and patients. Unquote Sigmund Freud. Your host wholeheartedly endorses petting parties as a therapeutic technique, particularly those under the guidance and encouragement of a tantric practitioner, or, if all participants are willing and know what they are getting into, your host. Continuing to quote from the same book, Consistent with his theoretical position and on the basis of clinical observations, Wilhelm Reich developed both diagnostic methods and therapeutic interventions involving touch. In his view, given the character of the patient is manifested in muscular armor, the therapist can diagnose by means of palpating the muscles, 
to discern patterns of muscular tensions. Reich thus touched to diagnose. But back to Reich and Ferenczi. In a paper entitled Considerations on the Technique, Possible Approaches Between Wilhelm Reich and Sondor Ferenczi, Bruno Enrique Prates de Almeida tells us that empathy, Einfühlung, the feeling occurring during therapy first proposed by Ferenczi, leads us to think about how this device could help in the singularization of care of movement different from technical applications indiscriminately. The concern seems to permeate some Reichian texts, where the search for technical improvement is also based on the individual case. So, let's consider Wilhelm Reich as a practitioner of Einfühlen, a practitioner of empathy in his therapeutic techniques, and in fact, as a highly empathetic individual overall. By May 1925, Reich had moved very close, some would say precariously close, to the epicenter of psychoanalysis. Yet, he felt that his position looked tenuous. To quote him, at that time, around 1925, the psychoanalysts in the technical seminar didn't like my work on genitality. Nobody dared touch it. I touched it fully. He dared Freud to pursue the libido theory to its fullest, to find its fundamental physiological properties. Then he raised the stakes higher until he reached the primary fork in the system. It's not either libido or society, he wrote. The libido is the energy which is molded by society. There's no contradiction. Reading Reich as a pioneer psychoanalyst shows us a methodologist with vast intellectual reserves and mischievous passion. But it can also remind us that the last 90 years of efforts to demonize him, that human liberation of sexuality of character and political resolve will lead to chaos, that Reich's theories of energy will expel us into fringe worlds, are unnecessary. Reich had all the characteristics of the early 20th century revolutionary who did not shrink from confrontation. In Reich's book, The Sexual Revolution, almost all of the essays are organized around the idea that people are naturally whole and that environmental repressions, i.e. multi-leveled opposites of freedom, fragment human character and preclude self-regulation. We become isolated and depressed, imprisoned by the superego's demand for compliance with mediocrity, by the bourgeois demand for social conformity. The above is based largely on a paper by Elizabeth Ann Danto of Hunter College in New York, the undergraduate alma mater of a former girlfriend of mine who is now a psychotherapist practicing in New York City. The context of this paper was an examination of the correspondence between Sigmund Freud and Reich, which she describes as beautiful and powerful and delicate in the way of Schoenberg's second string quartet. This definitely hit home with me since Arnold Schoenberg happens to be my favorite composer. However, we move on. In a paper by Kat Wa, published in Berichtetsus Wissenschaftliche Geschichte, published in 2022, she goes even farther. One of Reich's most ambitious and enduring theories claims that sexuality 
and sexual repression play a central role in the production and reproduction of class structures and hierarchies. While endorsing Lenin's view that superficial woolly chatter about sex which merely took people's minds off more essential things should be avoided, Reich invoked in his favor another of Lenin's remarks in the same conversation with Setkin. Communism will not bring asceticism, but joy of life, power of life, and a satisfied love life will help to do that. For Reich, the discussion and enjoyment of sex were part and parcel of the communist project. We quote, We shall be successful in our political work of enlightenment, he argued, only if we propose an openly and clearly sex-affirming ideology in place of the hypocritical and negative ideology of the bourgeoisie. Unquote. Reich did not see all forms of human sexuality as natural, however. Indeed, although Reichian sexology did not simply see sexual desire and reproductivity as identical, which is to say that it was perfectly okay to have sexual desires that had nothing to do with wanting to have a child, in naturalizing human sexuality, it nevertheless prioritized heterosexual relations. For Reich, normal sexual development was genital and thus heterosexual. Homosexuality was a result of either an early repression of heterosexual desire, for instance through neglect by the opposite sex parent, or an expression of the simple need for orgiastic release in the absence of, quote, genital, unquote, sex, or, in a very small number of cases, the result of physical female dispositions. He claimed that in sexually liberated societies, here the Trobriand Islands serve him as an ideal case, quote, such phenomena as sodomy, homosexuality, fetishism, exhibitionism, and masturbation are ridiculed by the natives as silly substitutes for the natural sex act, and therefore as paltry and fit only for fools. Unquote, right. The sexual liberation of society, the removal of obstacles for people satisfying their normal heterosexual desire, would, on this account, eradicate homosexuality except in cases where the gratification of genital desire was absent. According to Reich's theory of sexual economy, the repression of sexual desire led not only to sexual but to political pathologies. Reich argued that homosexuality, which he saw as a symptom of sexual repression, was positively associated with authoritarian tendencies. Already in the function of the orgasm, Reich claimed that orgastic potency, when stifled, could produce aggressive tendencies which made subjects susceptible to authoritarian regimes. In The Mass Psychology of Fascism, 1933, Reich continued this line of argument, claiming that, in order to anchor itself in the psychic structure, German fascism cultivated an attitude of submissiveness to authority in adolescents and children in its youth organization, the basic prerequisite of which is an ascetic, sex-negating upbringing. The natural sexual strivings for the other sex, he continued, strivings which from infancy on urged for gratification, were replaced partly by homosexual and sadistic strivings, unquote. As Klaus Tevelite has argued, Reich believed that the suppression of natural sexual drives implied by the Nazi insistence on discipline and self-sacrifice produced a latent homosexuality that could create enormous reserves of energy 
which in turn demand release and aggression. Thus, Reich observed that, quote, During the war, those who had strong heterosexual commitments or who had sublimated fully rejected the war. By contrast, the most brutal gung-ho types were those who were either latently or manifestly homosexual, unquote. How far were Reich's ideas about homosexuality different from those of, let's say, others in America during the late 1940s and early 1950s? How much was he, referring back to the paper by Norman Levine, an expression of middle-class ideology, as exemplified by the following educational or psychological guidance film from that era, aimed at high school and college kids? The dyke had sufficiently mellowed the young Deb for her ordeal. Still not knowing what she was about to undergo, went willingly upstairs with the dyke. And the young Deb enter the bedroom, and the suspense begins for the dead. The dyke is in no hurry. She is all evening, and the Deb has no place to go. At times like this, every dyke is out for herself. She would like to be the first one to initiate this young girl. It would give the dyke great satisfaction if she could be the first to have her. The young Deb, realizing now what they've worked out for her, begins to show fear. She tries to escape. That doesn't work. are too strong for her and eventually she's overpowered. do her work. 
Now, let's turn to Wilhelm Reich's own book, Character Analysis, first published in 1933. Quote, The psychiatrist who has not studied the bioenergetic functions of the emotions is apt to overlook the organism as such and to remain stuck in the psychology of words and associations. He will not find his way to the bioenergetic background and origin of every type of emotion. The orgone therapist, on the other hand, trained to see a patient first of all as a biological organism, may easily forget that, besides muscular armoring, bodily sensations, organotic streamings, and organotic attacks, diaphragmatic and pelvic blocks, etc., there is a vast field of functioning such as marital distrust, specifically distorted ideas about the genital functions in puberty, certain social insecurities and anxieties, unconscious intentions, rational social fears, etc., So here, Reich is contrasting the forms of therapy, his versus in a certain way Freud's, and alerting his readers to the possibility that orgone therapy focuses on the body, may ignore other aspects of the patient's psyche and experience which negatively impact his or her functioning. So, he's not saying that it's necessarily body therapy, somatic therapy alone, that will cure the patient. We now return to Reich. Quote, now, one was also in a better position to decide what other factors, apart from the making conscious of the unconscious, were necessary to cause the symptoms to disappear. It is only the meaning, ideational content of the symptom that becomes conscious. I repeat, it is only the ideational content of the symptom that becomes conscious. In terms of dynamics, the process of becoming conscious brings about a certain alleviation through the emotional discharge which goes hand-in-hand with it and through the elimination of part of pre-conscious countercathexis. But these processes, in and of themselves, do not affect very much of a change at the source of the energy of the symptom or neurotic character trait. The libidostasis remains notwithstanding the consciousness of the symptom's meaning. The pressure of the high-strung libido can be partially relieved through intensive analytic work, but the overwhelming majority of our patients require genital sexual gratification because the pregenital cannot produce an orgasm for a permanent resolution of sexual tension. It is only after this step, which is made possible by the analysis, that an economic readjustment also takes place. At that time, I tried to formulate the conception in the following way. By removing sexual repressions, the analysis creates the possibility of a spontaneous organotherapy of neuroses. Hence, the ultimate therapeutic agent is an organic process in the metabolic sexual economy, a process which is related to the sexual gratification achieved in the genital orgasm, And, with the elimination of the actual neurosis, the somatic core also erodes the groundwork of the psychoneurotic superstructure. At the outset, when the neurosis begins to develop, an external inhibition, tangible fear, which then becomes internalized, produces the libidostasis. Once this stasis, this frozen quality, this inactivity, this inertness, has been eliminated, again in a kind of cycle, both the repression and the psychoneurosis 
have become unnecessary, indeed impossible. The patient must, through analysis, arrive at a regulated and gratifying genital life if he is to be cured, and permanently so. We pause our reading of Reich's text for a moment. The cure of the neurosis, broadly defined, is a gratifying genital life. But what does Reich mean by regulated? The word is troubling in a certain way. Who, or what, or which principles, quote, regulate, unquote, one's genital life in such a way that it is still providing gratification? Is monogamy regulation? As we have seen, Reich clearly believed that heterosexuality was necessary regulation. And the word genital, even that word, can also be troubling. In two previous episodes, the one on nipples and again in the one on kissing, we have shared research on how orgasm is possible in a number of areas of the body and certainly highly pleasurable stimulation is. But unless you are dead, you don't need me to tell you that, or even if you are. I also refer you to our recent episode entitled, In Praise of Bisexual Women. One may dispute the notion that men are naturally bisexual in terms of having a strong feminine side. I, for one, dispute it. But I believe that women are naturally bisexual, and that the most sensuous women are the bisexual ones. But to return to this text by Reich, and I quote him again, No matter how short of this goal we may fall in some cases, it is on the basis of our insights into the dynamics of the libido stasis, the actual goal of our efforts. It is not without danger to lay less stress upon the therapeutic demand for effective sexual gratification as a goal than upon the demand for sublimation, if only because the ability to sublimate is still an ill-understood endowment, whereas the capacity for sexual gratification, even if it is significantly restricted by social factors, is, on the average, attainable through analysis. It is easily understood that the shifting of the stress of the goal of the treatment from sublimation to direct sexual gratification broadens considerably the sector of our therapeutic possibilities. Bingo! If at the end of the day, or in the final analysis, you might say, your therapist helps you to reveal the erotic desires you have been repressing only to tell you to sublimate them, is he or she opening up an easy path for you to follow toward mental health, toward an alleviation of your neurotic symptoms, whatever those symptoms may be? A core concept of Freud's was the return of the repressed, meaning that whatever we repressed returns in a way that was likely to make us dysfunctional and even lead to self-harm. Perhaps, to be truly functional, one needs direct sexual gratification rather than indirect gratification, rather than sublimation. That means our sponsor, Jacques Lacan, wants to add his two centimes worth. Jacques? Je suis Jacques Lacan. As I made it perfectly clear in my 17th seminar, the fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis, sublimation is nonetheless full satisfaction of the drive without repression. 
In other words, for the moment, I am not fucking. I'm talking to you. Well, I can have exactly the same satisfaction as if I were fucking. Hmm. Jacques, that does not exactly ring true with my experience. There are few things I enjoy more than talking with my girlfriends. I do it for hours, you know, texting too. And it's always great. It's a fulfilling, inspiring experience. In our conversations, my girlfriends and I show our support for each other, help each other through life's decisions, plan together, and simply enjoy each other's voices, each other's laughter, each other's breath, even if it is on the phone. We can feel it. We can inhale and exhale in sync. But there are times when, when talking, I have to say it, makes me want to have sex. So it's not exactly the same. On the Wieder Hollingsfang, the compulsion to repeat, which Freud discussed in his book Beyond the Pleasure Principle, in which classic text he associated with the death instinct, or death drive, the totestrieb, and which we have discussed extensively in this podcast, Reich has this to say. Hermann Nunberg writes that the repetition compulsion operates independent of the transference and that it is based on the attractive force of repressed infantile ideas. This would be correct if the repetition compulsion were a primary, irreducible psychic datum. Clinical experience shows, however, that the great attractive force exerted by the unconscious and infantile ideas derives from the energy of the unsatisfied sexual needs, and that it retains its compulsive repetitive character only as long as the possibility of mature sexual gratification is blocked. In short, the neurotic repetition compulsion is contingent on the libido's economic situation. Seen from this perspective, as well as the point of view to be encountered later in the formulations of the neurotic and genital characters, the peace between ego and id, which Nunberg is justified in postulating, can be secured only on a given sex-economic basis. First, through the supplanting of pregenital strivings by genital strivings, and second, through effective gratification of the genital demands, which in turn would solve the problem of the permanent elimination of stasis. Stasis, this sense of inertness, this sense of being locked in one's neuroses, in the struggle within oneself to free oneself, would be solved permanently by the satisfaction, the gratification of genital demands. Once again, Bingo! We note with interest that no less than Rajneesh, a.k.a. Osho, referred to Wilhelm Reich as a modern Tantra master, although he was not aware of it. Perhaps in his past life he may have known the secrets of Tantra because his work contained the secrets of Tantra. Unquote Osho. In several of our episodes, we have explained one can practice sexual yoga, karma mudra, lekishagya, with a consort. Realizing the true nature of passion transforms ordinary passion into the basis for the experience of great bliss, mahasukha, which greatly accelerates the removal of emotional and mental obscurations. 
What are we talking about here? Is not the removal of emotional and mental obscurations the goal of all forms of psychodynamic psychotherapy, leaving out for the moment the strictly behaviorist forms? Thus, Rajneesh was absolutely correct about Reich. He was a Tantra master. Let's pause again to talk about Reich's response specifically to Sigmund Freud's notion of a death drive, totistrieb. When Freud published Civilization and Its Discontents, Reich was appalled. In his 100-page monograph, Freud presented his pessimistic evaluation of the eternal conflicts among the ego, libido, and superego, within the self and between the self and the community. Eros and death remained the same major players they were nine years earlier in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and the aggressive drive assumed center stage. Needless to say, none of this sat well with anti-dualist Reich, who thought that there was no death drive, and that the so-called death drive for aggression was the result of bodily armoring rather than an innate piece of nature. For Reich, the optimistic romantic, the libido remained the core of psychoanalysis, a kind of Niagara of vital energy that had to find its outlet if it was not to become completely destructive. If Reich was correct about the libido, then Freud must be wrong about the death wish and the superego. There was hardly room for both. It really was a basic clash of temperaments. The romantic optimist, Reich, versus the realistic pessimist, Freud. I owe the following coda to Reich's ideas about the death drive to an article by Riccardo Gramontieri of Ravenna, Italy, published in the journal Psychoanalysis and History. In 1956, Wilhelm Reich published quote, Reemergence of Freud's Death Instinct as D.O.R. Energy. In this paper, Reich reverted to psychoanalysis in what proved to be his last theoretical article, in which he reassessed the Freudian theory of the death drive, the one thesis he had rejected in the 1930s, and whose rejection had made him unpopular with the psychoanalytic movement. In that article, not only did Reich intend to pay homage to his old master, Sigmund Freud, but also to partly revise his theories on the Eros-Thanatos instinct duality. After summarizing his own theories on the OR, orgone, life energy, and its DOR, negative equivalent, and continuing to claim that there was no clinical evidence to support the death instinct, Reich cautiously stated that Freud had had his legitimate reasons to classify that duality the libido, and the death instinct would actually be the psychological correlates of physical phenomena that he was able to observe both in the neurotic's character armor and in the weather phenomenon and climatic events affecting the environment. Your host is going to take the liberty of inserting a personal observation. Why, at the end of the day, in the effing final analysis, do we humans want to make everything dualistic in one way or another? For example, to hypostatize a presumed opposite to everything. Example, love. Is hate really the opposite of love? It is as if when you stop loving someone, you hate them. 
As I see it, there is the presence of love and the absence of love, which has not any quality of its own. You may see an absence of something as a vacuum, as something that should be there but isn't, but the absence of love is not in and of itself a negative. We want everything to have a countervailing force, like good deity and bad deity. We are caught in this simplistic mode, which, among other consequences, makes it so difficult for us to solve problems and to have any real communication. All right, moving on to some thoughts not entirely dissimilar from my own. As for our sponsor Jacques Lacan's ideas of the death drive, an important difference between Lacan's concept of the death drive and Freud's emerges in 1964. Freud opposed the death drive to the sexual drives, but now Lacan argues that the death drive is not a separate drive, but is in fact an aspect of every drive. And we quote him, The distinction between the life drive and the death drive is true inasmuch as it manifests two aspects of the drive, two aspects of the same drive. I add that clarification. Hence, Lacan writes that, quote, every drive is virtually a death drive because every drive pursues its own extinction. Every drive involves the subject in repetition, and every drive is an attempt to go beyond the pleasure principle to the realm of excess jouissance, where enjoyment is experienced as suffering. As a horror film aficionado from his earliest years, today's recommendations, Mill of the Stone Women by Giorgio Ferroni and I Bear the Living by Albert Band, the topics of death and pleasure are inextricably intertwined. So since Reich emphasizes pleasure so much in his thought, I thought that I had best allow our redoubtable sponsor, Jacques Lacan, to have a word on the subject. Lacan first developed the concept of an opposition between jouissance and the pleasure principle in his seminar, The Ethics of Psychoanalysis, 1959-1960. Lacan considered that, quote, there is a jouissance beyond the pleasure principle linked to the partial drive. Yet, according to Lacan, the result of transgressing the pleasure principle is not more pleasure but instead pain, since there is only a certain amount of pleasure that the subject can bear. Beyond this limit, pleasure becomes pain, and this initial pain principle develops into what Lacan calls jouissance. Thus, jouissance is suffering. Epitomized in Lacan's remark about the recoil imposed on everyone, insofar as it involves terrible promises, by the approach as jouissance as such. In his seminar, The Other Side of Psychoanalysis, 1969-1970, Lacan introduced the concept of surplus enjoyment, French, plus de jouir, inspired by Marx's concept of surplus value. Surplus enjoyment, surplus value. He considered objet petit a as the excess of jouissance, and which persists for the mere sake of jouissance. Lacan makes an important distinction between jouissance and plaisir, pleasure. 
For Lacan, pleasure obeys the law of homeostasis that Freud evokes in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, whereas through discharge the psyche seeks the lowest possible level of tension. The pleasure principle thus functions as a limit imposed on enjoyment. It commands the subject to enjoy as little as possible. Jouissance transgresses this law, and in that respect, it is beyond the pleasure principle. The symbolic prohibition of enjoyment in the Oedipus complex, the incest taboo, is thus paradoxically the prohibition of something which is already impossible. Its function is therefore to sustain the neurotic illusion that enjoyment would be attainable if it were not forbidden. The very prohibition creates the desire to transgress it, and jouissance is therefore fundamentally transgressive. Which brings us back to our horror movie. For Reich, pleasurable sexual gratification was the cure. Even when the talking cure wasn't working, or when the talking cure, by its standards, worked, but the patient was still neurotic and miserable. And, you know, for Reich, orgone energy is the whole enchilada. Now Lacan comes and says, and I emphasize that this is not in response to Reich, who, as far as I can tell, he never spoke or wrote about, that the pleasure principle tells us not to enjoy too much and when we strive for pleasure beyond that, we are in the realm of jouissance. In an article by Yorgos Dimitriadis, Research Center for Psychoanalysis and Society, University of Paris, Diderot Sorbonne, Cité Paris, he put forth the hypothesis of a relationship between certain neurophysiological mechanisms and specific clinical phenomena where jouissance is kindled and outside the control of the symbolic process through the neurophysiological mechanisms of conditioning, kindling sensitization, and excitotoxicity. In these cases, jouissance can have a destructive effect on the body and can affect, among other organs, the brain. A process Demetriotis had previously described heuristically as psychosomatic diseases of the brain. This would be a special mechanism of automatism that would be triggered under the specific conditions of the fragility of the signifying chain. This is a sad state of affairs, or at least so it seems to us. Maybe it's time to leave this divigation to fester, as opposed to kindle, and return to the main body of today's presentation. But not only that, Reich was also a physicist. Here are some little-known facts about Wilhelm Reich's relationship with Albert Einstein. On December 30, 1940, Reich wrote to Albert Einstein saying he had a scientific discovery he wanted to discuss. And on January 13, 1941, he went to visit Einstein in Princeton. They talked for five hours, and Einstein agreed to test an orgone accumulator, which Reich had constructed out of a Faraday cage made of galvanized steel and insulated by wood and paper on the outside. Einstein agreed that if, as Reich suggested, an object's temperature could be raised without an apparent heating source, it would be a, quote, bombshell, unquote, in physics. 
Reich supplied Einstein with a small accumulator during their second meeting, and Einstein performed the experiment in his basement, which involved taking the temperature atop, inside, and near the device. He also stripped the device down to its Faraday cage to compare temperatures. In his attempt to replicate Reich's findings, Einstein observed a rise in temperature, which Reich argued was caused by the orgone energy that had accumulated inside the Faraday cage. At the suggestion of one of the more skeptical assistants Einstein happened to have at that moment, Einstein redid the experiment with different results, which he reported to Reich who was surprised in that these results were quite different from those Reich himself had observed repeatedly in his own lab. Hey, who knows? Maybe the assistant was deliberately messing up the experiment. Reich responded with a 25-page letter to Einstein expressing concern that convection from the ceiling would join air germs and Brownian movement to explain away findings from the second rerun of the experiment. How different might the history of physics have been had the skeptical assistant not been there, and Einstein and Reich had collaborated on future experiments in the field of orgone energy. One can only dream a missed opportunity for science. However, let us jump off from this Einsteinian divigation train and turn to an article on the results of Reichian organomic therapy. We quote here from an article by Ellsworth F. Baker, published in the Journal of Ergonomy, Volume 1, 1968. Quote, A study of patients cured and not cured, regardless of the extent of the analysis, revealed consistently that the former had developed a satisfactory sexual life, where the latter had not. This brought into focus the need of regulating the organism's energy. In order to cure the patient, libido stasis had to be overcome. Sexual activity in itself did not guarantee this, but rather gratification in the sexual act. Reich called this capacity for gratification orgastic potency. Previously, sexual problems were considered only symptoms and not the core of the neurosis, and erective potency was believed to be evidence of adequate sexual functioning. Some psychiatrists still insist there are neurotics with normal sexual lives. Establishment of orgastic potency, however, brought about very definite changes in the individual which are not properly recognized or understood by most psychiatrists, even today. The recognition of orgastic potency was a crucial finding. Such potency signifies ability to discharge all of the excess energy and thus maintain a stabilized energy level in the organism. The process of energy metabolism takes place in a four-beat rhythm of tension, charge, discharge, and relaxation, which Reich called the orgasm formula. This confronts one immediately with another major factor. The libido must be more than a psychic concept. It must be a real energy. Since neuroses exist only on repressed excess energy or stasis, a person who develops truly adequate sexual release cannot maintain a neurosis. Once again, bingo. <laughs> Here I'm going to hazard a comment. One sees a thousand authorities promoting spiritual sexuality that is not really about sex. 
Some appear to us in the final analysis, again, so to speak, as a means of mastering one's sexuality without gratifying it. Reich, it seems to us, would have frowned on such approaches. For him, the way to get rid of your neuroses is through, quote, truly adequate sexual release, not by learning how to hold it in. I rather imagine that certain authorities on spiritual sexuality may dispute that, and I welcome them to join me as guests on future episodes of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. But back to Dr. Baker. Quote, Moreover, Reich presents certain basic transformations of a person who has reached this energy metabolism through his orgasm formula. His attitudes towards society change. Many social mores become incomprehensible. For example, living with a mate one does not love, merely because the law says you are married. The insistence on faithfulness merely out of duty. He has morals, true, but they are concerned with different values. He desires sex only with one whom he loves. Promiscuity is uninteresting. Pornography is distasteful. Tolerance is felt toward perversion and intolerance toward unbending attitude of society. He becomes self-regulating. Hmm. One of Mr. Sensuality's patented divagations. Must the desire for sex only be desire to sex with, quote, one he loves, unquote? In his interpretation of Reich, Ellsworth Baker is scarcely promulgating any sort of free love. In this podcast, however, we believe that sexual experimentation should go on throughout life and can actually strengthen relationships by bringing new energy orgone energy, if you will, into a relationship. Faithfulness out of duty should not be a characteristic of any relationship, including a loving one. The only true faithfulness is faithfulness to one's own libido. Unquote. Mr. Sensuality. However, we allow Mr. Baker to continue. Quote, Reich made three major discoveries which opened a vast opportunity for understanding human functioning and whose value cannot be overestimated. The reality of the libido, it is a flow of energy, the function of the orgasm, it regulates the flow of energy, and the muscular armor, it prevents regulation of the energy. The distinction between a satisfactory sexual life and an unsatisfactory sexual life and their separate effects on the organism required serious study. What was the difference between satisfaction and mere expression that the organism could remain healthy even though analytically a patient's therapy had not been completed while those with thorough analysis remained untouched where they had not accomplished satisfaction in sex? This satisfaction, satisfaction in sex, drained off the neurosis. So ideas or complexes could no longer be considered the important factor. One was dealing with physiology, not just with concepts. Nor was it just a matter of expression of the sexual substance, since ejaculation occurred in unsatisfactory experiences. The determining factor in satisfaction was the experiencing of pleasure in the act. Got that? Pleasure. Ecstatic sensual, sexual experience. 
This provides us with an excellent opportunity to say a bit more about a highly significant aspect of Reich's thinking, and more specifically of Reichian organomic therapy techniques, namely armor and armoring, and the need for the therapist to work with the patient in breaking them down. In this section, I shall be viewing Reich's own writings in part through the eyes of Russell Keat from the chapter The Human Body in Social Theory, Reich, Foucault, and the Repressive Hypothesis contained in his book The Human Body in Social Theory. Breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not going to say nothing about Foucault in this episode. Reich maintained that parasympathetic activity corresponded to sexual excitation and pleasure, whilst sympathetic activity corresponded to anxiety, and that this anxiety itself resulted from the repression of sexual pleasure, the failure to discharge sexual energy. Further, and with each step here, he departed increasingly from orthodox, both then and now, scientific views of the autonomic system. He claimed that the respective activation of each branch of the autonomic system was itself somehow produced by the flow of sexual energy, a quasi-electrical force that was, in his latter work, to be reconceptualized as cosmic orgone energy. What, though, happens to the anxiety supposedly produced by the repression of sexual impulses? Reich's answer was that it becomes bound in the form of hypertonic rigidities in the skeletal musculature, and hence, as he put it, the spasm of the musculature is the somatic side of the process of repression and the basis of its continued preservation. Whoa. Think about it for a second. The spasm of the musculature is the somatic side of the process of repression and the basis for the continued preservation of that process of repression. These muscular rigidities, the organism's way of dealing with the unpleasant anxiety resulting from the blocking of sexual energy, are to be understood as the bodily constituents of the character armor that Reich had identified in his analysis of resistance. Psychic defenses correspond to muscular defenses, and character rigidity to bodily rigidity. Thus, the initially metaphoric concept of character armor had now acquired a far more literal sense. But Reich did not talk of bodily defenses only in generalized quantitative terms, with degrees of rigidification corresponding to degrees of repression. His descriptions of character armor also involved far more specific differentiated accounts of what he called the physiology of repression. This has already been seen to some extent in the case history of the Trout Man. Elsewhere, Reich tries, for example, to identify particular bodily processes through which children may defend themselves against emotionally problematic situations. Thus, he describes how they may learn to suppress or control the expression of feelings made dangerous through the anticipated parental responses by holding or reducing their breath, and how this pattern may lead to more permanent, physiologically grounded blocks 
upon complete exhalation, involving abdominal tension, prevention of the head falling back, and a raising or tightening of the shoulders. He suggests also how certain facial and vocal characteristics may be generated by the inhibition of drying. There is a mask-like facial expression. The chin is thrust forward and looks broad. The neck just below the chin has a lifeless appearance and the floor of the mouth is tense. Such patients often suffer from nausea. Their voices are usually low, monotonous, or thin. This attitude can be tested on oneself. Imagine that you are suppressing an impulse to cry. The muscles of the floor of the mouth become very tense. The entire musculature of the head will be put in a condition of continued tension. The chin will be thrust forward and the mouth will be tight. There is nothing obviously sexual about the feelings being controlled in these ways, and even when Reich does talk more directly about bodily controls over sexual feelings, his descriptions are, at least at their best, in terms not of generalized rigidity, but of specific patterns of immobilization and postural fixity. He focuses, for example, on the formation of what he terms the dead pelvis, involving its inability to move independently of the thighs and upper abdomen, and often associated with a sense of emptiness or weakness in the genital area. This he presents as part of a more general pattern of the bodies being held back, with the back arched, the shoulders pulled back, the abdomen and chest arched forward, and the pelvis withdrawn. The whole symptom being a way of controlling problematic sexual excitation. And he connects this to what he regarded as the sexually suppressive nature of the typical military attitude or bearing. The neck has to be rigid, the head stretched forward, the eyes have to stare rigidly straight ahead, the chin and mouth have to have a manly expression, the chest has to be thrust out. These are bodily somatic issues that need to be addressed by the therapist. Having a chit-chat with the patient will seldom do the trick. From Mesmer to Freud, there had been a considerable change of opinion concerning the etiology of neurotic symptoms of bodily disorder. For Mesmer, the cause of symptoms was attributed to forces emanating from the stars and their cure to a redistribution of these forces through magnetized iron magnetism as the cure. For Freud, the cause of symptoms was attributed to forces emanating from the psyche, not the stars, and their cure to a redistribution of these forces achieved by a method of talking and listening. For the layperson, psychic causality or psychogenesis is often synonymous with imagination, confabulation, and unreality. For some medical practitioners, a psychogenic etiology means that a symptom is produced by a wish or desire, often for some reprehensible or immoral gain or goal, which may be unconscious. Among psychiatric specialists, psychogenesis pertains variously to thoughts, memories, wishes, impulses, drives, needs, attitudes, instinctual conflicts, emotional conflicts, unconscious conflicts, conflicts between id, ego, and superego, and tendencies relating to interpersonal relationships. 
Though the etiology of egopathologies must, at the present time, remain controversial, these pathologies may be described as modes of ego functioning in which one or other of the three subsidiary ego functions comes to monopolize the other two. Reciprocal interplay between the three ego functions becomes deranged or lopsided. The premises of traditional, we'll call it, Freudian psychoanalysis are 1. That only the psychoanalytic method of interpretation and treatment can yield or mediate for the patient correct insight into the unconscious causes of his neurosis. And two, the patient's correct insight into the conflictual cause of his condition and into the unconscious dynamics of his character is in turn causally necessary for durable cure. It is possible to discern two major components in Freud's approach. The first is the theory about the infantile origin of neurosis. Psychoanalysis hypothesizes that a psychic conflict arousing anxiety is repressed. This event is a necessary causal condition for bringing about psychoneurosis in adulthood. The second component is psychoanalytic therapy, the basic tenets of which are the lifting of repression and the process of re-education. Note that had psychoanalytic therapy consisted only of lifting repression, no cure could be expected. In this case, the psychic conflict would re-enter consciousness and as a result, it would restore anxiety, pain, and fear, which were from the beginning triggers of repression as a defense mechanism. So you've got a vicious cycle going here. If you make the id conscious, and according to Mark Soames, it is already, but that's neither here nor there, in that process, the psychic conflict re-enters consciousness and triggers repression. So, to rescue psychoanalysis, you add re-education. But re-education to what? Bear in mind that I approach psychotherapy from a Freudian starting point and certainly not from a behaviorist CPT one, and certainly, most certainly, not from a Jungian one. What I would argue is that Reichian somatic organomic therapy, not some vacuous re-education, is the missing component. And also that since a whole lot of repression is sexual, is repression of one's sexuality, repression of one's needs for gratifying sexual experience, if you get rid of repression, and we'll talk later about how much repression should be gotten rid of, then you break the entire cycle, or at least most of it. The enemy, therefore, becomes the bodily armor, which, among other things, stands in the way of an individual truly living in his naked, if you will, body. For more about armoring, I refer you once again to the work of somatic psychotherapist Anita Francesco, her books, and her Discover Joyous Love podcast. But back to Ellsworth Baker. Reich asked, Why is all this repression of humans necessary? Why is it so universal? The question was now so easy to answer, because no one could know how or why it all started. But one finding was consistent. Every patient under therapy reacted with terror when he reached the end phase, where all armor was dissolved, and he was confronted with the necessity of surrendering to his bodily sensations. His body had been so accustomed to holding still that it could not tolerate free movement. Stillness, immobility, unchangingness was safe. 
It was something to cling to, to save one from destruction, like God. God was unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet stillness is not satisfying, and never can be. For deep within men is a stirring, always calling for expression. Unquote. Expression. Sexual expression. Creative expression. Creative sexual expression. Creative expression in science and the arts. And indeed, we have already seen, and this corresponds with Albert Einstein, Wilhelm Reich's exploration and expression in the realm of science. Science, broadly defined, was always a key aspect of who he was, and became more so after his initial stature as a psychologist had been established. From the time of his earliest thoughts, your host has been fascinated, troubled one might say, by the distinction between what is living and what is not. Even between what is referred to as organic, it's got to have carbon in it, that's the most basic definition, and what is not. From the earliest time, I related to a pebble in the same way that I would relate to a blade of grass or a leaf, whether dead or alive. Thus, I was stunned when I discovered that Wilhelm Reich had been gripped by the same fascination. While the scientific world still clung to the dictum that every living thing comes from living matter, Reich began to probe the origins of life from a functional point of view. He has already enunciated his orgasm formula of tension-charge-discharge-relaxation as specific to all living phenomena and encompassing every aspect of the autonomic life functions from amoeba to man. In a series of human experiments, he had shown empirically the existence of an organismic energy, which he still thought of as, quote, bioelectric energy, and had proved that the subjective feelings of pleasure and anxiety were nothing other than one's perceptions of the subjective, measurable energy as it flowed from the core to periphery and periphery to core, respectively. This to-and-from movement of energy represented the basic function of pulsation, contraction, expansion, mediated through respiration, through breath, through breathing, in man and experienced as pleasure or anxiety, whenever a certain energy threshold was reached. Going from macrocosm to microcosm, Reich now ventured into the riddle of biogenesis. His intent was to set up processes in various substances that would replicate the four-beat fundamental formula. He found that both organic and inorganic matter, when made to swell, disintegrated into fluid-filled vesicles charged with energy, invisible only at magnifications upwards of 2,000 times. Preparations were first sterilized or autoclaved at critical temperatures to rule out the presence of prior life forms. The resulting vesicles gave off a bluish glimmer and showed such properties as pulsation, locomotion, internal vibration, gram-positive reaction, division, fusion, and the ability to paralyze and destroy bacteria and small protozoa. Reich described his discovery as, quote, a minute quantity of matter containing a quantity of energy derived from the matter, not complete living beings, but only carriers of biological energy, forms of transition from non-living to living. He called the vesicles bions and had spent many hours observing them and taking time-lapse films. 
To accomplish this required a virtuoso grasp of microscopic technique and mastery of a thousand technical problems. A monumental film shows the disintegration of a grass infusion and its subsequent reorganization into protozoa. Amazing. Reich was quick to caution that he had not created life from the non-living, but had demonstrated that, quote, the natural process by which protozoa develop spontaneously from vesicularly disintegrated matter. It took but one giant step for Reich to realize that the energy emanating from the bions was the same bioelectricity found in all living organisms from man to amoeba that it permeated everything and was cosmic in nature. In one stroke, orgone energy, as he now called the cosmic life energy, emerged from the shadowy domain of man's intuition and entered the realm of scientific investigation. By the way, in 1938, Reich presented his discoveries to the French Academy. Now, for your host, the word cosmic is a turnoff. It reminds me of nonsense that was tossed around in my grandfather's time, the 1960s, with all that hippie nonsense. Not that my grandfather was a hippie. He was way too smart for that. But let's divigate for a second and think about the twin-slit experiment. Thought experiment or real. Is the universe made up of waves or particles? It's like to be or not to be. That was a big question and in a certain way it continues to be. By the time you've observed them and believe you've been able to take a mental snapshot, they've gone presto change you on you. However, now, my favorite living physicist, not philosopher slash physicist, just physicist, Faye Dowker, is shedding some new light on all of this. Black holes are hot. This discovery made by Stephen Hawking ties together gravity, space-time, quantum matter, and thermal systems into the beautiful and exciting science of black hole thermodynamics. Its beauty lies in the powerful way it speaks of the unity of physics. The excitement arises because it tells us that there is something lacking in our understanding of space-time and at the same time gives us a major clue as to what the missing ingredient should be. Theoretical physicists at Perimeter Institute and elsewhere are pioneering a proposal known as causal set theory for the structure held by these most fundamental atoms of space-time. Professor Dauker argues that it is telling us that space-time itself is granular or atomic at very tiny scales. Usher in a surprise guest speaker, Dr. Wilhelm Reich. This is reality at the most fundamental level. There are space-time atoms. And imagining what Reich would say, these granular bits which are space-time, that's all there is, have an energy that is bionic. The energy in the space-time atoms are one. Your host is going to pretend he's a New Age hippie and say that sex is the fundamental energy and building block of the universe. Any beautiful women in the audience want to grab a couple of lattes at Starbucks and discuss this with me? Followed by a couple of shots of tequila? Hmm, the invitation is open. I would also like to add that our soul, our geist, or spirit, 
is composed of space-time atoms. When we believe we are experiencing something spiritual, it is our belongingness as beings made up of space-time atoms. I have that same belongingness with my lovers, as I do with pebbles in the ocean. There is no good. There is no evil. There are not even space and time anymore, for space and time are one. Well, Einstein thought that same way, too. Faye Dauker, who is half-Asian, British-Caucasian father, Asian mother, has, if we are not mistaken, suggested parallels with Buddhism. That's okay. Tantra, in its practices of Mahamudra, Karma Mudra, Lekhi Chagya, is Buddhist, with a little bit of Hindu dressing on the side. Just in passing, it has been suggested that the dark matter we hear about all the time, and which is supposed to make up 85% of the matter in the universe, is orgone. Reichian orgone. I'll buy that, <laughs> but it's not for sale. And now a word from our sponsor, French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. Salut les chats et les chatons, je suis Jacques Lacan. The following is from my seminar 19, Oupir, or worse. As you know, Freud frequently invoked the one as a signifier of an eros, reported to be that of fusion. Specifically, libido would be a sort of essence that would tend toward making one from two. This myth is something that can function only on a horizon of delusion. It has, strictly speaking, nothing to do with anything we might meet in experience. If there is something quite patent in the relations between the sexes in which analysis not only articulates but is designed to play out in every direction, it's that these relations between the sexes <laughs> present a difficulty. Nothing in them represents any kind of spontaneity. Eros is in no way a tendency toward one. Far from it. Au revoir pour le moment. <laughs> well, thanks, Jack. You do pay our bills, so in return for that, we always give you a bit of time. On its surface, what Lacan is saying sounds distinctly anti-Reichian. Here is what Reich had to say, which, in my opinion, is one of the most moving and eloquent things he ever wrote. This is from the chapter entitled The Genital Embrace, contained in his book, The Murder of the Christ. The longing for the fusion with another organism in the genital embrace is just as strong in the armored organism as it is in the unarmored one. It will most of the time be even stronger since the full satisfaction is blocked. Where life simply loves, armored life fucks. Where life functions freely in its love relations as it does in everything else and lets its functions grow slowly from first beginnings to peaks of joyful accomplishment. No matter whether it is the growth of a plant from a tiny seedling to the blossoming and fruit-bearing stage or the growth of a liberating thought system, so life also lets its love relationships grow slowly. From a first comprehensive glance to the fullest yielding during the quivering embrace. Life does not rush toward the embrace. It is in no hurry, except when long periods of abstinence have made instant discharge of life energy imperative. Armored men, on the other hand, confined in this orgasmic prison, rushes at the fuck 
His awful language already betrays the emotional feel of taking her against her will by force or seduction to be with a human being of the other sex, alone in a room for any length of time, without trying whether he can have her or her fearing that he might attack her, appears unthinkable. From this derives the disgrace to any human dignity in the form of a chaperone. In these days it is on its way out, since natural genitality began to occupy the public mind. The growing of marital love, and we would add relationship love, is simple. It can easily be done. The growing itself, the constant experience of a new step, the discovery of a new kind of look, the revelation of another feature in the partner's makeup, no matter whether pleasant or unpleasant, is itself great delight. It keeps you moving. It keeps you changing in your own natural direction of development. It keeps your appearance better looking than any advertised soap could ever do, and it keeps your face capable of flushing at the right moment. It takes many months, sometimes years, to learn your love partner in the body. The finding of the body of the beloved one itself is gratification of the first order. So is the victorious overcoming of the first difficulties in the adjustment of two alive organisms. He may not be gentle enough during his high excitation, and she may be afraid of full sweetness in surrendering to the involuntary. He may at first be too quick and she too slow, or the other way around. The search for the common experience of supreme delight in the complete merger of the two streaming energy systems we came to call male and female, this search itself in the mutual wordless finding one's way into the beloved sensations and truly cosmic quivering is pure delight, clean like water in a mountain brook, and delicious like the smell of a beautiful flower in the early spring morning. This heartwarming, continuous experience of love and contact and mutual surrender and body delight is the decent bondage which goes with every naturally growing marriage. The genital embrace emerges as the fulfillment of this constant delight, as a high point on a long mountain hike which takes you again and again back into the valleys, into the dark nights, and into stormy weather. You know you are moving onward to new heights far above deep, dark mountain valleys, and each time you reach another peak, it is different from all former experiences, since life is never quite the same, even in two consecutive seconds of one and the same operation. You do not have the ambition to be on top, to look down into the valleys, or to tell others how many mountain peaks you have conquered in a fortnight. Your basic mood is silence. You simply keep moving along, and you rejoice in every new height after the steady ascent. The preparation of the climb is just as delightful as the climbing itself. Resting after reaching the peak is just as beautiful as the first thrilling excitement when you first reach out for the landscape with your eyes and the rest of your body. You do not keep asking yourself painfully all through the preparations and the climbing whether you will ever reach the peak. And you do not need to invent a special pocket motor to get you safely over the last few feet. 
You do not choke the scream of delight in your throat when you reach the peak, and you do not start getting cramps when you feel the oncoming of delight. You just live fully each single step of it all. You know deep down that there is really not much to reaching the peak if you take care of every step toward it. You are sure of yourself. Since you have reached many peaks before, and you know the basic taste of it. You do not permit anybody to carry you up to the top, and you do not think at all of what your malicious neighbor would think or say if he knew about what you were doing. You left them all far behind, either doing the same or longing to do the same. The full, natural embrace is like such mountain climbing. It does not differ basically from any other life activity, be it of great or little importance. Full living means full surrender to any kind of functioning, no matter whether working, or talking to friends, or rearing a child, or listening to a talk, or painting, or anything else. The genital embrace grows out naturally from a slowly developing total body urge to merge with another body. The total organismic excitation precedes the special genital excitation. The orgastic potency grows out of this total body delight and not from the genital. The genital organs are merely the means of physical penetration after the mutual merger of the orgone energy fields has occurred a long while before the last fulfillment. This is so beautiful, I'm going to read it again. The genital organs are merely the means of physical penetration after the mutual merger of the orgone energy fields has occurred a long while before its last fulfillment. Ah, the contacts are gentle. There is no grabbing, grasping, clutching, pressing, pushing, squeezing, pinching in them. They go as far as is driven in the special approach and no farther. A man may love a woman dearly for months, desire her deep down to the fullest, meet her every single day, and yet he may not go beyond a warm handclasp or a kiss on the lips. When the embrace becomes necessary for both of them, it will happen inevitably, and they both will know the moment without telling each other in words when they are ready. But then... Nature will develop its most beautiful powers of unification of two living beings. The orgasm, in its true biological sense, is a result of steadily growing waves of excitation, and not something ready-made to get by hard labor. It is a unitary convulsion of one single energy unit, which long before the merger was two units, and which after the merger will divide again into two individual existences. Bioenergetically, the orgasm amounts to a true loss of one's individuality into an entirely different state of being. It is not the getting of an orgasm on her part from him, or on his part from her, as the sick-minded man in the 20th century was wont to believe. The proof of this is the fact that such getting the orgasm vanishes completely upon medical treatment, whereas the true bioenergetic merger does not vanish, but rather increases in its vigor. These matters are crucial. The fucking organism 
has to rush at it in order to accomplish it. It ends in rubbing it off or making love. The loving orgasm lets himself submerge in the flow of feelings and drifts on the current as master of every move. Like an expert canoe rider is in perfect control of his boat on a wild mountain river. Anyway, this would be a wonderful passage to share with a lover. I'm going to do it today. And perhaps, so should you. Let's get back down to earth. Well, maybe only part of the way. By talking about theory. The focus of Reichian somatic therapy is, as its name indicates, the body. We quoted earlier from Reich's seminal work, Character Analysis. A bit of history. Reich diagnosed the roots of the authoritarian personality 30 years before Theodor W. Adorno. The German Psychoanalytic Association pursued a policy of compromising and colluding with the Nazi government and the Deutsche Institute für Psychologische Forschung und Psychotherapy was directed by a cousin of Hermann Göring, a leading member of the Nazi party and second in command of the Third Reich. Scary to think about. And it could happen here. On March 1, 1933, Wilhelm Reich could no longer guarantee the safety of himself or his family in Berlin, and he moved to Copenhagen. In November 1933, Reich was expelled from the German Psychoanalytic Association in order that they could dissociate themselves from his radical views. In Copenhagen, Reich began to develop the deepening of his character analytic work into the understanding of how character was physiologically anchored in bodily defenses, particularly disturbances of breathing rhythm and muscle tone. He found that every neurotic character state involves some kind of diaphragmatic spasm and a disturbance in the normal balance of stress and relaxation in the vegetative nervous system. With his Danish students, he now began to develop the theory and techniques of vegetotherapy, a way of working directly and indirectly with the somatic ground floor of the character resistances. He was influenced in his shift to the body by his second wife, Elsa Lindenberg, who was trained in Laban movement work and was a pupil of the German movement therapist, Elsa Gindler. So Reich's wife, not unlike our associate and colleague, Anita Di Francesco, was trained in movement therapy, and she influenced the development of Reich's therapeutic technique. The women in our lives do have a, a lot of inspiration to give to us, I found. Now, let's speak specifically about some of Reich's ideas about sex. Our source for some of this is, again, Ellsworth Baker, among others. Before we proceed, I would like to say that your host version in vision of sexuality, and particularly of orgasm, is more broad than Reich's, as shall become apparent immediately. According to Reich, the genital is the only organ capable of discharging sufficient energy to avoid stasis. Since we have used and will continue to use the word stasis, perhaps it would be a good idea to place it in historical and scientific context. In contemporary medicine, interestingly enough, Stasis refers to a state in which the normal body flow of a body liquid stops, for example, the flow of blood through vessels, 
or of intestinal contents through the digestive tract. In evolutionary biology, punctuated equilibrium, also called equilibria, is a theory that proposes that once a species appears in the fossil record, the population will become stable, showing little evolutionary change for most of its geological history. This state of little or no morphological change is called stasis. That is to say, when the species, morphologically, in terms of its form, its formation, its structure, ceases to change, that is the point at which it is called stasis. When significant evolutionary change does occur, the theory proposes that it is generally restricted to rare and geologically rapid events of branching speciations. So, from this perspective on stasis, we return to Reich. The genital is the only organ capable of discharging sufficient energy to avoid stasis. Pregenital zones, such as the mouth and anus, only add to the excitation rather than discharging energy, except in infancy when the mouth replaces the genital in orgastic discharge. However, in our last few episodes, we have referenced research which shows that 20% of adults have indeed experienced oral orgasms. But back to Reich. The important factor in adequate discharge is the experiencing of pleasure in the sexual act, which means that, with pleasure, energy reaches the genital and can be fully discharged if there is no holding in the organism. Reich investigated the orgasm experimentally and found that the mechanical functions of tumescence and detumescence do not explain orgastic phenomena. Erective ejaculation and detumescence may occur without any trace of satisfaction or may lead to disgust and unpleasure. Consider some of the research we have reported. However, we ask how often women experience clitoral orgasm accompanied by a sense of disgust or unpleasure. This view of Reich's applies, in our opinion, mostly to men. One of our maxims in this podcast is, in orgasm, women experience triumph. In orgasm, in ejaculation, men experience defeat. But back to Reich. This experience of disgust or unpleasure can be seen in cases such as nymphomania or satyriasis, where sexual outlet is constantly sought, but gratification is never achieved. In the course of experimental investigation, Reich postulated that the orgasm was basically a bioelectric phenomenon. That is, in addition to mechanical filling and discharge, there occurs a bioelectric charge and discharge in the following sequence, which he called the four-beat orgasm formula. 1. Mechanical filling. Tumescence, hyperemia. 2. Bioelectric discharge corresponding to subjective sensations of pre-orgastic pleasure. 3. Bioelectric discharge, corresponding to subjective sensations of orgastic pleasure. 4. Mechanical discharge, detumescence. The juxtaposition of the genitals and coitus he saw is constituting an electrolytic system in the following manner. 1. Male circulation, source of charge. 2. Penile epidermis, electrode. 3. Female secretions, electrolyte solution, conducting medium. 4. Vaginal mucosa, electrode. 5. Female circulation, 
source of charge. To quote Reich directly, the male and female circulations and the mutually stimulating plasmatic excitations in the autonomic nervous system represent the inherent sources of electrical charge on the organs of sexual contact. The equalization of the potential gradient occurs between the two surface potential, penile epidermis and vaginal mucosa. In a further experiment, he corroborated this by showing that the genital and other erogenous surfaces serve as a locus for the buildup of bioelectric potential. Subjects monitored by an oscillograph regularly showed sharp upward deflections when an erogenous zone was stimulated, but only if subjective feelings of pleasure were experienced. If an identical procedure on the same subject evoked displeasure or annoyance, the result was a sharp downward deflection corresponding to a sharp decrease in bioelectric charge, withdrawal of charge from the skin surface. Subjects could regularly predict the degree and direction, up or down, of the recording by the degree of pleasure or displeasure they experienced subjectively. For example, an erect penis produced no upward deflection unless pleasurable excitation was felt. The degree of subjective pleasure felt was always accurately quantified by the objective measuring device and coincided with the demonstrable buildup of a bioelectric potential. Reich equated this bioelectric energy with what Freud called libidinal energy, now no longer a Freudian metaphor, but an empirically demonstrable energy, something you could measure, something that wasn't just a theory or concept, something that you could attach a number to. The same bioelectric energy was reflected as pleasure if it flowed outward to the skin surface with resultant buildup of charge at the skin site and as anxiety if it flowed away from the skin surface, causing a lowering of charge at the skin site and increasing central tensions. These experiments showed conclusively the basic antithesis of sexuality and anxiety. Energy flowing from the center to periphery is functionally identical with pleasure. Energy flowing, on the other hand, from periphery to center is functionally identical with anxiety. It is the direction of flow of this energy that determines which emotion is felt. To quote Ellsworth Baker, Reich could only conclude that sex, which is formerly believed to be solely for reproductive purposes, had the vitally important function of maintaining a stable energy level within the organism. Sexual activity is thus of little value for emotional health unless it is experienced with pleasurable excitation reaching a peak in orgasm when the excitation rapidly diminishes. What does your host think about that? Hmm. As we have said on previous episodes, foreplay is what happens between orgasms, and that foreplay is pleasurable. Merely thinking about, envisioning the person or persons you're having sex with, your partner, if you want to use that word, should be pleasurable. As we have explained, it can be like action at a distance, in which Albert Einstein did not believe, but has been proven conclusively by recent quantum physics. If you are a twin with someone in that way, if you are like two particles with the same polarity, if you have an erotic, sensuous, pleasurable feeling, then your twin will feel that way too. 
try it. It's amazing. And then there is love. What did Reich have to say about it? This question is discussed extensively by Robert S. Corrington in his book, Wilhelm Reich, Psychoanalyst and Radical Naturalist. And his discussion forms the basis of much of what I'm about to say. To begin with, sexual attraction stands forth as the major motor force not only for biological systems, but for the universe itself. Reich's position is similar to that of the physician Eryximachus in the Symposium, who, when asked to define love, argued that the basic glue of the universe was eros, the energy that brought all things together, especially heaven and earth, the gods and the mortals. While Plato struggled to distance himself from sexual forms of eros, however, Reich privileged the sexual form as foundational and normative for all other manifestations of eros and orgone. To quote Reich, Biologists are familiar with the fundamental phenomena which, right through to and including the 20th century, remain commonplace, yet at the same time uncomprehended and mysterious. I am referring to the overwhelming force of attraction exerted on each other by both sexes throughout the animal and plant kingdom. The force leads to the sexual act and culminates in orgastic plasmatic convulsions in animals. It is a life-sustaining force. This attraction is an orgone physical function in the realm of the living. From the cosmic to the local, there is a movement of attraction that cultivates in some kind of organomic expression. Felt by us in the orgasm as the muscular and characterological armor gives way to primal convulsions of libido. Organisms can obviously attract or repel each other, but the reason for such differences at the deepest level lies in the orgone field that underlies the most obvious mechanisms of attraction and repulsion, such as physical features in sexual selection processes. In the human order, transference and countertransference fields are actually organotic fields. That is, they are merely one of the ways in which orgone interacts with the flexible space between the conscious and the unconscious. To fall in love, to be in bioenergetic attraction, is to enter into this transference and countertransference momentum. Yet, as noted, neither form of projection represents, either alone or in conjunction, a sufficient condition for genuine love. They may be necessary conditions, but other conditions must also be met, such as an awareness of the full autonomy of the other, Immanuel Kant's kingdom of ends, and the continual pursuit of self-transparency. The drive to make as many unconscious motives as possible manifest to the attending consciousness, making the unconscious conscious, the Freudian pursuit from day one. Let's take a moment to talk about the terms transference and projection. We certainly lack the time to go into this deeply, so what I'm about to say must needs remain simplistic. Projection is the attribution of one's own attitudes, feelings, or suppositions to others, thought in psychoanalytic theory, to be an unconscious defense against anxiety or guilt. Transference, on the other hand, is a term frequently used in psychoanalytic literature, going back to Freud. It is the process whereby emotions are passed on or displaced from one person to another, 
During psychoanalysis, the displacement of feelings toward others, usually the parents, is onto the analyst. In the view of our sponsor, Jacques Lacan, quote, transference does not refer to any mysterious property or affect, and even when it reveals itself under the appearance of emotion, it only acquires meaning by virtue of the dialectical moment in which it is produced, unquote. In other words, Lacan argues that although transference often manifests itself in the guise of particularly strong affects, such as love and hate, it does not consist of such emotions, but in the structure of an intersubjective relationship. In Lacan's later view, transference is the attribution of knowledge to the other, the supposition that the other is a subject who knows. Quote, as soon as the subject who is supposed to know exists somewhere, there is transference. An interesting thing Reich had to say about love is as follows. Frauen lieben in der Mehrzahl in der Masse wie und nur durchsalb, weil man sie liebt. Frühe Schriften, page 130. The majority of women love only because they are loved and to the degree to which they are loved. Is this, in fact, the case? One of our favorite films is A Beau Soleil Interior, A Beautiful Interior Sun, by the brilliant French writer-director Claire Denis. In this film, actress Juliette Binoche pursues a number of men who refuse to reciprocate her affection and who are, in fact, manifestly unworthy of her. She gives up on them one after the other until she finally decides that a certain guy is her Mr. Right. Her true flame, as someone we know labels it. But who is he? In the film, this true flame guy is more than standoffish. He refuses to involve her in his life or to reveal more than the most superficial things about himself. He ends up giving her the boot as well, leaving her to ask a psychic, wonderfully played by the great French actor, Gérard Depardieu, what is going on with her life. As the end credits begin to roll... Depardieu examines each of her relationships, or proto-relationship, each of these men that she's been so attracted to. He tells her what happened and what will happen in the future. Some people believe that it is only men who develop these sorts of romantic illusions and fixations, but alas, women do too. Even when the real Mr. Wright is right there in front of them. Are you listening? The man who actually understands them, believes in them, supports them, honors them, and yes, loves them as a man in a relationship or a marriage should and must do. <laughs> okay, enough of that. I would now like to turn to a discussion of Reich and shamanism, a category which is now thrown around by New Age YouTubers and podcasters. The ultimate authority, Wikipedia, advises us that shamanism is a religious practice which involves a practitioner, the shaman, interacting with the spirit world through altered states of consciousness, such as trance. The goal of this is usually to direct spirits or spiritual energies into the physical world for the purpose of healing, divination, or to aid human beings in some other way. Unquote. I myself had a trance experience a few months ago in the context of a medical event. It was quite unsettling. Professor Harry T. Hunt of Brock University, Ontario, Canada, has penned an article entitled 
the future promise of Reich's naturalistic bioenergetic spirituality. This article will form the basis for much of the next section of this podcast episode. Classical shamanism, as well as the neo-shamanism of contemporary transpersonal psychology in their empathic animation of physical nature, is simultaneously universal and intensely local. Reich spent hours and hours observing the woods, lakes, and ever-changing weather of rural Maine. That resulting sensitivity helps to understand Reich's work with the Cloudbuster less in terms of weather control than is a dowser-like exteriorization of his inner empathic resonance with the larger patterns of atmospheric change. Could we also say of the universe? Observers of Reich's procedures with the Cloudbuster stress that he would not proceed without first feeling the air to see if such intervention would be safe since its effects could be unpredictable and even untoward. His cloudbuster operations were often followed several minutes later by changes in wind direction and moisture, which is as consistent with an unconsciously anticipatory intuition as it is with any causal control. A sensate mysticism of the future, supported by the mirroring evocations of water, land, and sky, would also be important in any planetary spirituality that might step back from ethnic fundamentalisms while still conserving some degree of regional identity and at the same time respond to the globalizing crisis of ecology and environment. The latter was something especially central to the later stages of Reich's thinking and now emerges, sadly unbeknownst to himself, as essentially a modern shaman. Shamanic spirituality involves cultivation of an inner life energy based on sensations of inner bodily streaming in its outward resonance, sounding strikingly similar to Reich's orgone. While Roger Walsh, in his book The World of Shamanism, sees an identity between shamanic energy experiences and Chinese qi, Reich saw the same parallel with Indian prana similarly stressing that its cosmic manifestations in nature behaved more meaningful than in any traditionally causal fashion. All right. I stop here to ask what Reich could have meant by more meaningfully. What he may have meant is that there is a context greater than past, present, future, with each of these moving forward and not reversible, Although in physics it is a given that all experiments are reversible in the sense that if a ball rose down a slope, its trajectory when reversed would reach the same starting point. Well, that's classical physics. But would it? Quantum physics, on the other hand, is inherently probabilistic. Many quantum physicists talk about probability instead of cause. The result of recent experiments by Martin Ringbauer of the University of Queensland, Australia, demonstrate that the only way now that one may rescue some kind of classical realist causal interpretation of quantum correlations involves more radical revisions of John Bell's assumptions. For example, backwards-in-time causations, or many-worlds interpretations of quantum mechanics with multiple parallel universes. Reich's thinking had led the way to such ideas, Quantum physics recognizes the essential role played by spontaneous fluctuations of all physical objects that cannot avoid fluctuating. While the ancient's nature was characterized by horror vacui, fear of emptiness, 
the nature of quantum physics is characterized by horror quietus, fear of resting. Every object is characterized both by fluctuations induced from the outside through energy supply and by fluctuations, spontaneous fluctuations, from within. Quantum physicist Erwin Schrödinger introduced the idea of Sittbewegung, jitter motion, that is everywhere, in everything, even, I would suggest, in one of Faye Dauker's space-time atoms. And I would compare this, say it is perhaps equivalent to, Reich's orgone energy in bioenergetics. The fluctuations of the oscillation rhythms of the objects, which is called phase in the jargon of physics, spread in the environment in the form of potentials of particular fields, called gauge fields in the theory. The clearest example is the electromagnetic field which governs the interactions between atoms and molecules. The phase, distinct from the energy, can travel faster than the speed of light. This produces a violation of causality in Einstein's sense. As a result, interactions based on energy transmission obey the causality principle, no effect occurs before the arrival of the cause, while interactions based on the transmission of the phase, as they are mediated by a measure that can travel at an infinite speed or even go back in time, do not follow the causality principle and may connect different subjects in different spaces and times. Meanwhile, highly influential contemporary French philosopher Quentin Maissou, following in the footsteps of his teacher and mentor, Alain Badiou, the greatest living philosopher, argues that in place of the agnostic skepticism about the reality of cause and effect, there should be a radical certainty that there is no causality at all. Following the rejection of causality, Mayasu says that it is absolutely necessary that the laws of nature be contingent. The world is a kind of hyper-chaos, in which the principle of sufficient reason is not necessary, although Mayasu says that the principle of non-contradiction is necessary. But back to Reich and shamanism. In her book, Woman in a Shaman's Body, Reclaiming the Feminine in Religion and Medicine, Barbara Tedlock, Ph.D., distinguishes the feminine and masculine in shamanic training, with the former, whether for individual men or women, emphasizing exactly the developmental continuity between sexuality, inner bodily energy, and empathic healing methods that reemerges in Reich, the male tradition being centered more on metaphors of spiritual combat. Tedlock stresses that women shamans are more often seen as the more powerful healers, and that numerous tribal traditions believe that they, women, were the first shamans. Consistent with Tedlock, recent research finds that not only do women report more spontaneous mystical and peak experiences, but that women reporting such experiences describe more intense sexual experiences than women lower on the questionnaires of openness to new experience that also predict such states. While traditional accounts from Plato and the Symposium and Indian Tantrism picture a male pattern of spiritual sublimation going from sexuality to mystical ecstasy based on the suppression of the former, Tedlock describes an experiential continuity between female orgasm and ecstatic states. The first potentially morphing directly into the second female orgasm morphing directly into 
an ecstatic state, a spiritual, mystical ecstasy. Well, this is the pattern of development that Reich himself explains, from orgasmic potency to inner streaming to cosmic orgone. I am here borrowing from ideas presented in an article by Dr. Margarita Tosi and Dr. Emilia del Giudice of Central Studio Eva Reich, Milano, Italy, entitled The Principle of Minimal Stimulus in the Dynamics of the Living Organism. They state that, quote, under appropriate conditions, the fluctuations of matter and vacuum can be synchronized, thus starting a collective dance reminiscent of the orgasm intuited by Reich. We can finally put forward the hypothesis that Wilhelm Reich's orgone is the form assumed by the energy of the organism in a condition of coherence. In this case, the disappearance of the orgone becomes the consequence of the loss of coherence of the organism with a subsequent loss of self-movement and a tendency toward the state of inert matter. I repeat this last statement since it strikes me as particularly profound. Wilhelm Reich's orgone is the form assumed by the energy of the organism in a condition of coherence. In this case, the disappearance of the orgone becomes the consequence of the loss of coherence of the organism with a subsequent loss of self-movement and a tendency toward the state of inert matter. Bingo, as I have said before. To the extent that we lose the orgone, we become incoherent and inert, incapable of functioning. And to the extent that we accept chat GPT and AI as equivalent or perhaps superior to us, we lose orgone. It would be bad form for me to do an episode about Reich, which did not mention his influence, actual or one might say spiritual, on well-known philosophers, or perhaps in one case I should say writers about philosophy, in the 1960s and 1970s, even though these writers did not mention Reich by name. To do so would have been bad juju. Reich had died in jail because he believed he could cure cancer. At the beginning of today's episode, I referenced several negative, not only critical, downright negative, writings about Reich. But what was the overall public conception, even in the halls of academia? Exactly what I just said. He was a guy who had a crazy cancer cure. We know better. But they didn't. Nevertheless, it is interesting to think about Wilhelm Reich, Norman O'Brown, and Herbert Marcuse in the same sentence. Well, paragraph. To state matters simplistically, in books such as Life Against Death and Love's Body, Brown, known as Nobby among his academic chums, rhapsodized about the coming era of polymorphous perversity. Repression was bad, plain and simple. Plain and peanut. Who needs it? Herbert Marcuse, on the other hand, said that all that was required was to get rid of surplus repression. But where do you draw the line between necessary repression and surplus repression? These were, believe it or not, hot topics on college campuses in my grandfather's era. The swinging 60s and their droopy disco aftermath. Bosnian scholar Milanko Govedarca penned a paper in the Bosnian journal Teoria in Bosnian entitled On the Sexual Revolution, Reich and Marcuse, 
and his views will form the basis of what I'm about to tell you. Reich could never get rid of the naturalistic definition of man, understanding him as a human animal, while Marcuse shared with other members of the critical theory Frankfurt School the idea of negativity about human mediation of all aspects of nature. The fundamental difference between Reich and Marcuse came to the fore in their understanding of the sexual drive and the revolutionary potential of sexuality. Marcuse did not share Reich's optimism in terms of human biological structure, since destructiveness as an expression of the death drive was considered by him an inherent component of human biological being. However, this does not mean that Marcuse was not an optimistic thinker. But the point is that he, again as a member of the Frankfurt School, presents a different kind of optimism. According to his view, Eros and Thanatos, the death drive, do not have to be antagonistically opposed and their reconciliation is possible. The basis of this atonement concerns the principle of nirvana, which is understood as the deepest essence of the whole drive dynamics. At the same time, the principle of nirvana means a spontaneous tendency toward reduction of tension, which is considered to be equally characterized by Eros and Thanatos. In the context of such thinking, everything that is less compulsion of the struggle for existence, which implies social elimination of scarcity, there is less tension, so the urge to live and the urge to die cease to be irreconcilable. Thus, Marcuse's optimism stems from the belief that the destructive instinctive attraction of death, the aspiration to return to lifeless matter, will diminish in proportion to the increase in pleasant life contents, where hunger and poverty and so forth have been eliminated. In the framework of Reich's thought, it is not possible to explain the simultaneous existence of satisfied sexuality and aggressiveness because this thinker understands aggressiveness only as one of the effects of sexual dissatisfaction. In contrast, Marcuse indicates that destructiveness is often confused with sexual freedom, considering that the affirmation of sexuality does not have to be an affirmation of eros. Repeating, consideration that the affirmation of sexuality does not have to be an affirmation of Eros. In Marcuse's view, the quantum of total impulse energy, which consists of both erotic and destructive energy, is limited, so the increase in erotic energy investment causes a decrease in destructiveness, while an increase in destructive energy causes a decrease in eroticism. However, this by no means implies that an increase in sexuality causes a decrease in destructiveness, because hypertrophied sexuality most often implies a reduction and not an expansion of eros. Hypertrophied sexuality, sexual extremism of one form or another, excess emphasis or concentration or fixation, upon sexuality. Most often implies, per Marcuse, a reduction and not an expansion of Eros. In this context, sexuality includes the partial libidinal cathexis and signifies the fixation of Eros as a self-transcending libidinal cathexis, 
which enables the increase of destructive energy. By contrast, in following in Freud's footsteps, Reich affirmed genital sexuality as the principle of psychosexuality of human development. According to Reich, the characteristic of maturity is successful sexual functioning, which implies the ability to have a total orgasm, such an orgasm in which one releases all of one's sexual energy. This point of view implies a mechanistic understanding of the human physicality, according to the model mechanical tension, bioelectric charging, bioelectric emptying, mechanical relaxation, as we have already discussed in slightly different terms. In contrast to Reich, Marcuse advocates the historical materialistic point of view and, in a specific social historical context, affirms the importance of non-genital sexuality, considering that in modern society the fixation of erotic energy is on the genital. Underlying Marcuse's view is the thesis that intensification of genital sexuality increases aggressiveness. Who of my listeners really believes that? In our society, there is so much sexual crime, rape, non-consensual acts of sadism and sexual harm. Harm, whether physical or verbal. And the question is, are these a result of intensification of genital sexuality per se? Or do they stem from a denial of appropriate outlets for genital sexuality? All questions. We are now going to step away from Alonko Govedaricha's view to that of Maria Klee in a paper entitled Eros and Donatos, the dynamic of drives in personal and civilizational development from Freud and Marcuse, from which we shall now briefly quote. Quote, <laughs> Freud recognized two basic, apparently counterbalancing, currents of drives. The erotic drive, usually related to the instincts of life, love, and creativity, and the death drive, associated with the tendency toward aggression and destructiveness. Such a non-dualistic interpretation is based on Marcuse's view that both drives are manifestations of one central current of energy defined as libido. Marcuse attributes to this term a content more akin to Jung's understanding, which is comparable with the definition of a vital energy found in other cultures, such as qi energy of the Chinese or the kundalini of the Indian. The actual form of bioenergy is what animates being and is subjected to multiple dualities of the instinctual drives, and through these transformations is manifested in various expressions of human beings. Unquote. Hmm. Give me orgo and energy any day of the week and twice on date night. Let us conclude with some final words of wisdom from the man himself, Wilhelm Reich, from the English edition of The Function of the Orgasm, published in 1942. Psychic health depends upon orgastic potency, i.e., upon the degree to which one can surrender to 
and experience the climax of excitation in the natural sexual act. It is founded upon a healthy character attitude of the individual's capacity to love. Psychic illnesses are the result of disturbances of the natural ability to love. Psychic illnesses are the result of disturbances of the natural ability to love. Who could say it better? Thus ends this episode of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality, the podcast that always gives you a happy ending, as we're famous for. And this last statement by Reich is indeed a happy ending. That means our sponsor, Jacques Lacan, wants to add his two centimes worth. Jacques? Je suis Jacques Lacan. As I made it perfectly clear in my 17th seminar, the fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis, sublimation is nonetheless full satisfaction of the drive without repression. In other words, for the moment, I am not fucking, I'm talking to you. Well, I can have exactly the same satisfaction as if I were fucking. Hmm, Jacques, that does not exactly ring true with my experience. There are few things I enjoy more than talking with my girlfriends. I do it for hours, you know, texting too, and it's always great. It's a fulfilling, inspiring experience. In our conversations, my girlfriends and I show our support for each other, help each other through life's decisions, plan together, and simply enjoy each other's voices, each other's laughter, each other's breath, even if it is on the phone. We can feel it. We can inhale and exhale in sync. But there are times when, when talking, I have to say it, makes me want to have sex. So it's not exactly the same. Reality during sex. My body morphs to give my lover more pleasure. Where did those additional tongues come from? How did they become so long, so vibrant, so textured? Just drop by, we told Sarah, after we seduced her with our eyes at the bar. It's something we do, my girlfriend of the moment and I. Women know that if they get picked up by a couple, they will have a good time. Because it is not about conquest, it's about pleasure. It's about experimenting. It's about seeing how far they can go, how much they can give, how much they can receive. The door will be unlocked. We gave her a look that said, We want you. No questions asked. No need to ask questions. She enters without knocking and finds in the candled vestibule 
on an onyx table in front of where she stands, a flute of champagne and a magnum of 1923 Veuve beside it. Sarah runs her fingers along it, the chill the hundred years have made it wise. It knows everything about love. It knows all the secrets and truths of love. And all the lies. Come on up, reads the note beside it. We're thirsty. Join us. The sounds of lovemaking in the sea. The sounds of lovemaking and the sea. They are the same, sex and the sea. The surges, the wearing down of resistance, and yet, and yet, the vast power. Sarah is in a trance. She feels the warm ocean on her body. Her nipples, her cunt, tremble. My girlfriend, my girlfriend are in bed. I'm going down on her. Down. Down, down. With my fingers and my tongue. And I encourage her, I tell her to take her fingers. To do herself along with me. She and I are both making love to her the same time. Her fingers tell me where to go with my tongue. Then I lick them. I take her finger out and lick it. I take her finger out and put it in my mouth. In and out. The taste. The taste of her. The taste of her. The taste of everything that she is, everything that she's ever touched. I taste it. It is inside me. Everything about her is inside me. While well, my girlfriend's ex-boyfriend sits in a chair, stroking himself. Stroking himself. I imagine him, what he does with my girlfriend at the moment, what he did. He is very large, erect. Sarah looks at us, my girlfriend of the moment and I, entwined, morphing, like a sculpture, but more alive than any stone or planet or galaxy could ever be. She glances at the ex-boyfriend again, and he vanishes. Sarah approaches us, and somehow we all drink the Veuve from the bottle. The three of us become champagne, sparkly liquid like the stars, like all the stars expanding outward to no edge is there. No edge is imaginable. Sarah is naked and begins to lick the sparkles from her bodies. Then my girlfriend parts her legs. Her clitoris is throbbing. 
Sarah and I extend our tongues toward it. But first, we kiss. It is as if our tongues had gone all the way down inside. I am flicking her G-spot from within. My girlfriend, for the moment, <laughs> watches as fantasies of our pasts and futures run through her mind. She is proud that I can have such a woman, a woman such as Sarah, that she can, that my girlfriend of the moment can have and will have such a woman. We are power. We are orgone energy and orgone power. And our kiss and our kiss I had not guessed, but I should have, that Sarah knew so much about kissing. She is an artist. We are making music with our tongues. The roughness, the darts, the tiny flicks, the tiny ignition. One moment languorous, the next a festive whirlpool sinks us down, draws us in. We breathe each other's breath. I taste what has just been in her lungs, the molecules. They speak of her ancestry, of her past lives, the intoxication of time. Then my girlfriend my girlfriend of the moment's body rises toward us. We laugh. And time, we control it. Everything lasts just as long as we wish it to. Each moment stretches until it reaches its full length of pleasure. Beyond pleasure. Sweet songs, sweet songs. And then...